Sound Design. But I found myself one night driving home from the gig, just burnout, just thinking to myself, this can't be the next 10 years of my life. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Nick, what are you doing in Minneapolis? Today, I'm with the band OAR. We're doing a big rock show at the Mystic Lake Mystic Casino. Lake Casino. Yeah. Okay, so you're here at the band OAR. OAR. We're from Cincinnati? I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, yeah. The Where's band? the band from? Yeah. They're actually from Rockville, Maryland. Oh, okay. But they kind of formed at Ohio State. So there's a big Ohio connection. A lot of people in this camp are from Ohio. Cleveland area. I'm from Cincinnati. Toledo area. Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. And your original connection is with, uh, I can't remember, the band manager, I think? Uh, no, it's Mike Larcy, the front of house engineer, okay. production manager. Mike and I toured together for a long time with a band called Over the Rhine from Cincinnati. So that's how I know this camp. That's how I had the opportunity to be the monitor guy. So how's the tour going so far? It's great. We are on show 32. Oh, wow. That's a lot of shows. <laughs> We've been out since uh, middle of, first part of July-ish or so. Um, we've got about two more weeks left this, this Summer tour ends in Seattle on the 18th. Okay. And then we'll continue doing some one-offs and some short touring from now till the end of the year. So tell me a little bit about the, the technical side of the tour. You, you guys are carrying all your own production. There's two trucks full of gear. Yep. Um, so that must be nice for you, at least on consistency. Totally. And it's not yep. all your favorite gear. Right. But, um, maybe talk a little bit about um, your setup on stage and maybe what you think are some of the um, more interesting features of it. Yeah, totally. So all the control for this show, meaning the consoles, anything wireless, amplifiers, anything that's on the deck, monitor world, front of house console, all that stuff is provided by Mike Larcy of ML Sound. And then we're carrying um, a DMB rig from 8th Day, and then the big lighting rig is all provided by Christy Lights, I think. Um, so... My world consists of a Midas Pro C, so it's all a Midas system. So everything, uh, all the I.O. boxes are Midas, all the consoles are Midas. We're using all Sure wireless, um, some lab group and amplifiers, some DMV wedges. Um, I guess it's it's pretty run of the mill, not a run of the mill, but it's it's very normal, kind of how monitor world is set up. Okay. Um, yet some things we do differently is the wireless all lives in my world and monitor world, um, meaning all the wireless, not just the mic, the, the vocal input. So all the guitar, bass, all the instruments also live in my world, which isn't always the case. Often those inputs might live in guitar world, which is usually stage right. And then the guitar tech would keep track of that? Yep. Okay. Yep. And the guitar tech usually would deal with that. And there may be a coordinator that deals with wireless the RF side of things, maybe there's not, and there's always a communication with both sides. But in this case, because we have all the instruments on um, wireless, well, the way we do it is all the wireless lives in my big, we call it the, the refrigerator. <laughs> you know, it's a 30, I'm not quite sure how tall it is, it's huge. It's a, it's a two space or a two column, large, I don't know, five foot case. We actually did a video earlier, so I guess Perfect. with this interview, on the same page, I'll put a photo and, and include some of that video. Perfect. Okay, cool. Because everything lives there, we have to be able to get the signal out to the pedal boards and the amplifiers onto the stage. 
usually um, there may be the wireless receiver for the guitar might be next to the guitar amp or something Oh, wow, like I didn't that. think about that. So the guitars run directly to you, and then you have to send them back out for the pedals and effects. And stuff. Correct, because it's a wireless situation. So we achieve that by just taking the output of the receiver into the 12 pairs that go out to the stage. That then will go out to uh, a Jensen transformer, some sort of a, like a reverse DI, if you want to think of, think of it like that, but a transformer that'll step down uh, my output from the receiver to the pedal board. And then the pedal board does its thing, and then that, obviously, the output of the pedal board goes back to an amplifier so it can be heard. So that is kind of a, a different way of doing things than I think that most people do. And it seems like it's worked out really, really well. Um, every day, the guitar tech will, he gives me this little lunchbox, basically a metal lunchbox of all of the packs for the day, all of the the uh, transmitters for all for the guitars. All the guitars. Okay. Yep. And after I've, after I've done my coordination, I give them the lunchbox back. And that's just how that works every day. And from the monitor side of things, since I'm managing the RF every day also, not knowing what someone else's abilities or knowledge is about RF, and if something does happen during the show and I have to go run to stage right or something to deal with an RF issue, and I have no idea how they even coordinated in the first place, it's difficult. So it's nice to have everything in one place. There's one person that deals with RF, which in my case is me. Um, it takes a lot of stress off the guitar tech, I believe, because he's not dealing with frequencies every day. Or if there's an issue on RF on his side, he has to come to me and then I have to tell him something. He has to go back and change it on his end. Um, he just trusts me. <laughs> and uh, he has a just a little PC laptop that is running wireless workbench in monitor mode. So he's oh, so able he to look. Watch. Okay. Yeah, so he can see which packs are on or off. Because on this specific gig, you know, there's a lot of wireless. There's 30 channels of wireless happening. And there's there's multiple packs for one input. You know, the lead guitar player might have two packs for a Strat and two packs for a Tele, but there's four guitars total. So as he's handing a guitar, like say he's he has a Strat in his hand, he's going out to the stage to exchange a Strat for a Strat. When he gets the other Strat back, he has to make sure that the other Strat he's taking back has been turned off. Okay. Because it's the same frequency. Oh, really? Right. Okay. So in order for him to know those things sometimes, or to know if something's on when it shouldn't be, to have wireless workbench there, and he can see what's on or off, the battery level, um, the audio level coming in. Well, how does that work? There must be a moment when... Because he has to turn it on before he gives it to him. So there must be a moment when they're both on, right? Yeah, absolutely. But the artists are hoping. aware of that. They know. Like, okay. they just know. They're all pros in this camp. Okay. All the musicians are pros. They understand. They even can hear when there's two packs on. We all can hear that. But even the artists, you know, they, they can hear that. And they know that there's a moment. And usually it's, you know, the song ends and, you know, our guitar tech, Jeff, is a, is a pro. He knows exactly the smooth switch of a guitar for a guitar. And the, the musicians know the same thing also. So he knows for a second there, as he's walking out, he's switching on, flip it, and as he's walking back, he switches it off. And he's, they just figure it out. You know, yep. it's, it's like a very well choreographed tech change that happens all the time. On this tour, we have uh, all the amplifiers off stage, which is the first time we've done with this band before. I, I thought I saw a giant bass amp there. There's a bass amp on stage, yes. Okay. There's a bass amp on stage, <laughs> but guitar amps. So yes. I was just about to ask you, yeah. I wanted to ask you later about how, how loud the stage is, if you have any problems with that. So that must help a lot. It does. I mean, I think on this specific tour, the stage setup has been changed. 
Um, this band has always done a very traditional, um, you know, drum center upstage, keyboards maybe to the left, stage left, and then bass to, to stage right, um, which has worked great for a long time. But I think that trying to reduce the wash on stage into vocal mics, and you know, this band plays gigantic places and also some smaller places, and but we have to be able to adapt in all those situations. And when you're in a smaller venue and the drums are eight feet behind the lead singer, that can be a challenge, you know, to get rid of that wash. Sure. I have some tricks for it, but in general, it's just, it's a distance thing and, and it's a problem. So they decided to kind of switch it all up and put the drums stage right and put the horns in the center and keep the keys and guitars where they were, but get the guitar amplifiers off the stage. And where are the amps? So the lead singer, Mark, his electric is to the right of the, uh, the drum riser pointing off stage with a baffle in front of it. Okay. And then the lead guitar player, Richie, his amp, it depends every, every day, but his cabinet is usually hidden behind one of the guitar vaults and with a baffle in front of it. So you can still hear the guitars, you know, when you're on the stage, but when you're actually in position, you know, they're wearing ears, they might be hearing the front of house mix, but they're not actually hearing their actual amplifier um, without having it come back through their ears. And it's definitely reduced stage wash, it's reduced, um, it's cleaned up everybody's mixes in lots of ways. I mean, the, the guitar player, Richie, I think for years he was used to hearing his guitar the way it sounded with the bleed of his vocal mic, which is, you know, 15 feet, you know, in front of his guitar amp. So I know for him, it cleaned up just his tone in general. And I can be way more specific with what I'm giving him now because it really is an isolated thing, but it's not like a red box where there's no speaker involved. There's, so I was wondering how much longer till you just take the guitar. The <laughs> yeah, totally. And we've done, we've, we've tried the red boxes a couple of times, but you know, this isn't like a big, huge guitar heavy band all the time. And they want to hear that sound. They, you know, the, I think the red boxes are great, but there is a difference. Like you can hear it. And these guys are just really used to hearing a mic to cab. You know, and, we, and when we can reduce the volume and get it off stage, it's a great compromise to what's going on. And we have another, another guitar player in the band who also plays the saxophone too, Jerry. Um, he uses a Kemper, so he has no amplifier on stage at all. And obviously his, <laughs> he's got no stage volume at all. Nice. But stage volume in general, the bass um, rig really isn't that loud. I mean, he's got a 8x10, whatever they call it. Yeah, 8x10 Ampeg. It's on its side. But it's not really that loud. I mean, it's, okay. it's got some volume. It's a rock band, but it's not crushing. Okay. Um, the drummer, you know, he's a rock drummer. He hits the drums, you know, and, and hard. But it's not out of control. Deck is not super loud. So you move the drums to stage right, but now you have the horns behind the lead singer. Mm -hmm. So do the horns have shields? Do they get into the no, vocal No, they mics? just work with it. I mean, Jerry, the saxophone player, moves around all over the place. Okay. So he's not just in a fixed position. And, and John, the trumpet player... He also does that. I mean, they kind of all move around quite a bit. You do hear some bleed of the trumpet in the downstage center mic, but honestly, the singer's usually standing in front of it. There's enough distance that it's not a huge deal. It's not like a salsa band where there's four horns, dead center, playing high Cs the whole night, and there's a vocal mic, you know, 10 feet in front of you. So um, we were able to reduce the the low end on stage over the years of taking away things that vibrate or make sound. So when I first came onto this gig, um, the drummer, um, you know, he was on ears, of course. We also had a two, eight, like a double 18 behind him all the time. Plus he had a seat, a thumper that was thumping. 
And the bass player had, you know, his usual um, Ampeg 8x10 or whatever, and he had a double 18 next to him also, plus a wedge, plus his ears. So the first thing I did after the first couple of shows is just start to not use some of those things or not give them as much. And the first thing to go was the the double 18 with the drummer because he was feeling the kick in his seat. And I think the interaction between the actual double 18 behind him and the position on a daily basis, which might change, I think he was hearing it a millisecond later, or it was out of out of phase with him sometimes, and it just felt wrong. And I just shut it off. We got rid of it. I cleaned that up. And he was and okay with it. Totally okay with cool. it. Yeah, awesome. it made because it's all about. Like I don't care if you need eighty-five speakers up there. I mean, if you're like my job is to make the artist feel comfortable so they can do their thing, and and the audience can pick up on that. So I'm really careful sometimes of letting my own opinions about what I think should be done override what the artist wants and what's comfortable. And I think a lot of, um, I see that happening a lot in the negative, meaning the engineer will say, well, you don't need this because I don't think you should have it. Mm -hmm. And that's not the, it shouldn't be like that. It should always be um, trying to make the artist happy and trying to make compromises the best you can, but don't just take stuff away because you think it's the best thing. I mean, if if they need it, then you give it to them, and you try to make it work the best you can. It's always compromised. So you've had th- you got thirty channels that you're uh, coordinating on this tour. How's that been going? Have there been any places where you've had a really hard time fitting those frequencies in, or has it been? You know, not, no. Not I mean, there's some cities that definitely I mean New York and, and L.A. and and uh, Houston. There's some areas that yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on, but I don't know. I think I've just figured out a good workflow in my world of RF and coordination that I'm methodical about every day and it doesn't take me that long, but I'm very specific about what I'm doing and I know what I'm looking at on a scan and I know what the environment looks like and I know if something isn't working, why it's not working and oftentimes it's really not the space for the channels. It's maybe the position of an antenna or even the space into the program, the coordination that was the the math that was involved Mm -hmm. didn't quite work. So I really haven't. Um, You know, last summer we were with a band called Train all summer and they have quite a bit of wireless also. Granted, they shut it off when we were on, but they had a massive LED situation, LED screen. And that posed some some challenges also. And I had to Mm -hmm. kind of find ways to make that work. But in general, it really hasn't been that bad. As long as you're, you're paying attention to the fundamentals of RF, and why things work and don't work. 30 channels is not that big of a deal. I actually coordinate 40 channels every day because I have backups for, for things. But in general, yes, we're rolling with 40, 40 channels of wireless. Yeah, and in your setup, I saw that although you have some higher-end units like the Axiant, um, you're not doing anything really fancy. You don't have any bandpass filters. I don't. You do have a pad because, uh, as you talked about in a video that you published recently, you feel that reducing the input from those active antennas uh, is actually helping you reduce no- the noise floor, but you're not losing any signal. Right, because there's a, there's a principle in RF that I don't really 100% understand, but it's a signal-to-noise kind of ratio happening, and you're trying to obviously get more signal-to-noise, and you think that putting a pad on is going to reduce every signal and the noise. It's going to go down to a level that the signal is now below a specific line, and you can get to that point with a very, very heavy pad, of course, but 
just reducing a little bit can help. You'll, you'll still have the range that I need, which is 60 feet or something, not hundreds of feet. In my case, the reason why I'm using the pad, in addition to just kind of reducing some of the noise floor, is the antennas I'm, I'm using are the Sure amplified antennas that are active at 3 dB or 10 dB. Okay, so you're coming in a little too hot anyway. I'm coming in too hot, got, basically. Got and the coax that I'm using, I don't have that long of coax that would that would create a loss. Because sometimes if I need 3 dB of loss, I'll just get a 50 foot coax <laughs> if I don't have a pad or something, if that's the situation. But because I'm using the, the, the antennas I'm using, I have to kind of scale that back. And honestly, I started putting the pads on a couple shows in because of, a, of, of an issue and I've left them on accidentally. And honestly, it's been fine. Okay. There's been no issues. <laughs> it's actually, maybe it's been even helping me in some ways, but um, I think in our environment, there's a lot of like, confusion about like the antenna gain and like people thinking, like, I don't know how many times I'll walk into a situation and those antennas will be on plus 10 and they're on a 10 foot coax into a unit. And the key takeaway is always to remember that that amplifier is to make up for the loss of the cable has well, nothing to do with distance and range. Yeah, so let's talk about maybe some of the, some of the, so you've been around all these dates, you've been touring nonstop, let's talk about maybe some of the errors you've made, mistakes you've made, or maybe that you see other people making. There is a specific level that we want our antennas to come into the receiver at, but it doesn't seem like there's a really easy way to calculate that, but there does seem to be standards to follow. And so you're trying to basically follow those standards. And so one of the standards that you saw being broken was this person has their antenna amplified by 10 dB. That's breaking the standard. Am I understanding that correct? Yeah, because all that wireless gear, those manufacturers, they're engineered to be operating at unity gain. And that's what it wants to see. Because there's a lot of, I mean, all the manufacturers are experts in RF. They know what they're doing. And... What you don't want to do is overload the front end of that, which is what's happening quite a bit, is people are overloading the front end. Yes, you'll still have reception. It'll still work, but it's not the proper way for it to be working. So I guess if you are overloading, then that's bringing up the noise, right? Correct, and also you can... Correct, and and on the pro units, you'll see an overload light for the RF, and even the accents will give you an overload indicator when that happens, and... Is that good good enough? Like if I set it up and see that I'm not getting overload lights, is that good enough for me to know I'm coming in at the right level? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like, (laughs) I've had a lot of people ask me like, you know, is there a way to like just, you know, put a device before the input of the receiver or the antenna splitter and to know I have this much loss? And yes, there is, but they're really, really expensive. Um, So the best thing you can do is you know what the antenna, if you look at the specifications, what the passive gain of an antenna is. I might say 3 dB or 6 dB or whatever it is. So that's just automatic, no, uh, nothing active gain. You always want to use as little gain as possible, always. You don't want to use active gain unless you absolutely have to. That's the whole key. So always remember that. Don't use active amplifier for RF if you don't need it. It's just going to bring the noise up also. Even if it's a very low noise amplifier, you still want to use as much passive gain as you can. So if you if you're starting with passive gain, then you've got this cable that goes from your antenna to the receiver, and you want to put your antennas somewhere up and high. So there's going to be a distance situation happening there. So that distance, there's loss in that cable. So it, you can go on, on, on the web and easily see, there's calculators all over the place for this brand of cable or this type of cable, 
and what its loss is over a certain distance. So just a little bit of math can tell you, okay, well, this antenna is, has a forward gain of 3 dB, and I've got 25 feet of coax, and this whatever, this cable is, has this much loss at this much feet. You can at least get pretty darn close. And it can be uh, over and up. It's not a, it's a huge thing, but if you're way over, if you're 10 dB over or something, you're not going to get the performance you really want out of it. I see. So, so it's just so like it's pretty obvious to you that if someone uh, has 10 dB of amplification on their antenna and then maybe like 10 feet of coax straight into the receiver, that's going to be too much. Too much. Okay. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and um, I'll try to give you some links, but there's a couple great resources. Um, some really knowledgeable guys that actually, I think one guy has a an iPhone app or an Android app that's only for RF, and you can put all those parameters in, it'll calculate your loss oh, for cool. you. Just like, this is the receiver, this is the kind, kind of cable, this is the antenna I have, this is the bandwidth I'm working with. Yeah, I don't use bandpass filters or anything, not because I, I don't think they're great. I think they're great. I haven't had to have that steep of a filter in order to function. I do have them in my, my, my RF box of goodies. <laughs> I just don't bring them out if I don't need them. Any other technical things about this particular tour or um, past dates? We've, we had some issues early on on this tour with Axiom, the new Sherline, and the, those guitar packs, and the ear packs. So this tour, we, we started using Axiom, some Axiom, some ULXD, and some UHFR. It didn't sound like traditional RF interference, but it was just like a, like a weird sound I really hadn't heard before. It wasn't an interference per se. And my stage right, the, the bass player Ben, stage right, was complaining about getting dropouts on his ear pack. Oh, no. And of course I would run out there and, and switch a pack out and stand there next to his world and just with his pack, cued, listening. Clean, 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 everything's clean. And he complained again the next night of this dropout happening. And the next night I went out there and I switched frequencies. I did all, all the usual troubleshooting that I do. I'm ready for all of that all the time. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at his pack and on the PSM 1000s, there's an, a green on light and then a blue RF light, which indicates it's receiving RF. And I saw the blue light go on and off, which tells me it's being stepped on in some way or, or crushed in some way. And then I look at his, his strap where his base is and I see where his pack is for his wireless base. And he's using an Accent pack. And then I see his PSM 1000 receiver in his back pocket, and the antennas are pretty darn close. And realize that just that much difference was causing that dropout. Oh, wow. So our only quick solution at that point, the next day, we had an extra channel of UHFR. We just put him on a UHR pack instead of an Axiom pack. That solved that problem. So there's a shielding thing, I think, that's going on with... I don't know if it's a shielding thing or maybe just the transmission of the accent right now that's possibly causing some problems with the same issue with an active acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. The accent pack, we started hearing all this kind of weird shh kind of stuff. He replaced the pickup, he replaced the preamp, he replaced the guitar tech. Happened again. And then we figured out, we took the pack, we put it all around the guitar, and we started hearing the noise again. Same thing with that. We basically put them on a different, on a UHFR, and that problem went away. So I'm sure Sure is working on that. <laughs> but it was a thing of, of like, we, we, 
we didn't really think that that was a possibility. We looked at everything else before we looked yeah, at. Axiom's supposed to be amazing. Yeah, How absolutely, and it is right, and, and they are really are incredible. It's an incredible unit, but that thing, and maybe it's from the other side. Maybe it's just the man, like the the pickup manufacturers need to be shielding better, or something like that, or maybe the PSM one thousand and the Axiom, and maybe just the antenna orientation. You know, and it's hard because on that specific show before, when I saw the light go out, I basically moved his his ear pack to his other pocket, solved the problem. But for 20 years, he's been using his right arm or whatever sure. to adjust his volume. So okay. he got through that show, but it proved that it was nothing to do with the frequency, nothing to do with the range issue yeah. or you anything. Add, basically added like six inches between the yep. antennas. And that solved the problem. Wow. Right. But I couldn't, con obviously I'm not going to convince him to put it in a different pocket. <laughs> and even like, you know, the pack was as far up on his um, strap. On strap as he could to have it. So I guess the moral of the story is to make sure you're paying attention to the orientation and the closeness of the antennas, your ears and your transmitter. Nick, you and I wrote a book together. We did. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I did that in between all of this. You're an amazingly productive guy. Um, the book is called Get On Tour. Yes. It is about what you do yeah. a lot of which is touring and it is um stories from a lot of different people including myself robert scoville uh, buford jones scott adamson basically just stories about how their careers have progressed in an attempt to share that information with more people who want to do the kind of work that you do yeah. which is touring and yeah. there's a lot of people who want to do the work that you do and what i have discovered is that it's really hard to tell someone what that work is like. You don't really know what it's like to be on a tour until right. you're doing the until tour you're work. Until you're doing the tour, right. Yeah, totally. So I feel like the best thing I can do is just share stories from people's lives and then help them, you know, get to do that work if they want to and find out if they really like it. Like, you've yeah. got to actually do the work. So. Great idea. What I want to talk about is a transition that you identified in your chapter in the book. Here's what you wrote. I found myself a bit burned out without much direction and looking for another path. So I want you to take me to that moment when you realized you were burned out. Um, what was going on in your life? At that point, I was a house guy in Cincinnati and I was doing some touring, but I was basically working at a venue that was maybe two or three shows a week, sometimes four shows a week. And it was just me, meaning, you know, I was in for the for the load in every day and it was just uh, and there was no loaders it was me helping the band every day it was monitors from front of house it was i was doing the lights also it was just a long day and mixing multiple acts every night educational wise opportunity wise it was great but i found myself one night driving home from the gig just burn out just thinking to myself this can't be the next 10 years of my life because you know, I'm a musician also, so musically I, I was wasn't... Was it the repetition? Was it the sort of lack of feeling like acknowledged? You were just all, was it just um, you I, were lonely? I think it was, I was overworked because it was me doing so much of the work and I wasn't really making that much money. It wasn't something that was giving me anything spiritually anymore. Like it, I kind of gotten through a, a period of education and learning and making lots of mistakes and, and I loved that job for that purpose. But then you have one too many angry tour managers or, <laughs> or a musician that, that, you know, it's just, and that, of course, is going to happen. That's, that's this world. But when you're already worn out and that happens to you, 
often <laughs> you're not the reason why you're just in the room when all this is happening and to feel like you're not going in a direction that is growth it's more of just this is what it's going to be like for the next that's what i was seeing it like this is really not going to change much yeah is that what you were saying to your friends or this is not what i should be doing like i just wanted to to grow past that and i felt like that was a great opportunity for me to be in but it wasn't going to get me anywhere and that was the wrong thing because that was the exact place that got me to my next step of touring i decided to stick it out for a little bit longer is what I did. And I, I mean, I was building my career, you know, so I realized that that's something I had to do in addition to just, I was just making a living. And I was still freelancing, doing other audio gigs and still playing music. And, and I was still had my hands in a bunch of stuff, but I just stuck it out for a little bit longer. And, um, you know, I, I've mentioned this before, but a band came through called Over the Rhine and they're kind of a, a very big act out of Cincinnati that kind of made it big. And they were doing some hometown shows there. And I've always knew about the band, huge reputation back home and all over the place, honestly. But I never heard them before. And I was the house guy, you know, and they come in to do their two nights and they had a front of house guy and they needed a monitor guy. And the de facto situation is, you know, I'm the, I'm the monitor guy if I'm the house guy. And um, first song, it was like musically it was a like a spiritual moment. Oh, nice! <laughs> like I remember, I even I think I even have a video. I put a camera up that night. I just like remember a drink thinking, of water when you're in the desert. Right, totally. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. I remember thinking, this is my next step. I, I remember that moment, and after the second show, after loadout, the singer Karen came up to me and, and asked me if I, you know, would be interested in touring wow. with them because they had a new record coming out like a month and a half later. And that was my break. At, at that level, that was my break. Prior to that, it was a lot of touring in vans with my own band and stuff like that. And you know, Well, that was also your break from being feeling burned out for the next 10 years. Totally. Yeah. And the crazy thing about that is that I started touring heavy with Over the Rhine, which took me out of town a lot. And so I had to sub out my work at this theater. Oh, you I kept the still, job? I, I oh, could, wow. Yeah, because I wasn't... I was able to get some stuff covered, but I'm always coming back, you know, like I, all tours end and no one's on the road all the, I mean, there are people out on the road all the time, but I wasn't, I was touring a lot, but I still had to come home and pay the bills and I wasn't making that much money touring at that time. But eventually I lost that job. I was fired from that job eventually because I wasn't available, you know, and I look, when that happened, I looked at that situation, like, how could they fire me? Like I, you know, I was like, I was so... I did. I sacrificed so much for them at that place, and and all of that. But I understood where they were coming from. But when I look back on it, I'm so grateful that they did, because it really gave me freedom in my life to pursue other things. Because I, I have a a level of responsibility to anybody that I'm working with or for, and it was hard sometimes to continue subbing myself out to go do something better. Yeah. I see people struggle with this in our industry all the time. It's yeah. One of the one of the hardest things to do is grow in our industry. Uh, growth is hard in our industry for a lot of reasons, and I think one of them is that it's so hard to know when the right time is to make that jump and say yep. no to one thing and yes to a new thing yeah. and not be sure if that new thing is going to work out because totally. there's no promises in pro audio, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. So it sounds like someone made that decision for you and it worked out. In some ways, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think that just knowing sometimes, like, I think you just can... There's a, there's a gut that is speaking at some point to you, you know, that like in my situation with Over the Rhine, I just knew, yeah, of course I'm going to do that. 
I'm not going to, you know, and yeah, it was difficult to, to be away from my girlfriend at the time. And it was difficult to sub out all this work, but I was going to do it. You know, I had to do it at that point. So let's talk about being self-employed. Yeah. Um, you wrote, diversifying and being flexible and available have always been the keys to my self-employment survival. When working at home, I freelance with several audio companies, tackling festivals, special events, corporate events, um, talking about writing articles, services, teaching. Uh, I co-founded and programmed a special 22-week Latin music series in Cincinnati called Salsa on the Square. And I also manage an apartment building. <laughs> so from having multiple clients to working multiple jobs, you seem to have figured out a balance that works for you. Did you have some kind of a role model to learn this from at the beginning? How did you figure out how to find this balance? I don't know. I mean, I definitely had a role model from a musician standpoint and a band leader standpoint. Like I had a, a really good friend who was a musician that kind of took me under his wing when I was much younger. He's like, hey. You need to start managing an apartment building. <laughs> right, right. But he, I think it was about um, conducting your life, your self-employed life with responsibility and not looking at it, not, get, not believing the stereotype of I'm a musician, therefore I'm, I sit on the couch all day long or something at my parents' house and don't do anything and smoke weed all day long and that's my life. That and, good. <laughs> right. But... Even in the early days of being a band leader, there's a level of responsibility that's happening there that it's not just playing your instrument. Like you, I had to learn skills of marketing and selling and sound systems and vehicles and, and, and accounting, like all these things, these skills that you had to learn. And I think because of that and because I took the job seriously, that those things prepared me later on in my life to be more flexible with, with how I'm living my life. Because I, I did go through a period of time where I taught guitar in the day and played six nights a week at night. I was just a musician. That was all I was doing. I mean, I was a band leader at the same time, too, but it was music and teaching. I think that's a great path for lots of people. For me, it wasn't a path that was giving me anything, any of the good stuff in my life. Like, I loved teaching, but at the time, I didn't want to spend six hours a day or five hours a day teaching 30-minute classes to kids every day. I just didn't feel that that was what I wanted to be doing at that point in my life. And I knew that I had more to offer than just what I was doing. So a lot of it comes from um, necessity of, you know, I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, so it's not like it's a big production town. And I could just go get gigs anywhere or something. I've really had to make all of my breaks myself. And in some ways, a small city, it can be beneficial to you because you, you're not competing against other people, but also just a kind of a mindset of, you know, I'm not going to hire you because you haven't done this, 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 this. I'm just going to go ahead and make the opportunities for myself. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to get good at what I'm doing. And in order to, to do that, I'm going to do other stuff. I mean, I was a mechanic. I repaired BMWs. For, oh, really? Yeah. I've, uh, a friend of mine who was a big fan of the band at the time, uh, we used to borrow his van to go on the road. They called it the Black Mambo. It's this gigantic van, Dodge van. And coming home one time from a tour, we blew a rod in his, in his van. We, we blew something up in his engine. And I had no money at the time. And he's like, well, can you, can you work for me? You know, and at the time I had no money. And I, I mean, I didn't have money to pay him back. I said, sure. 
So I would get up at six in the morning and go learn how to do brake jobs and repair BMWs all day long. That's it's a shop he owned. And at night I'd play music. And that was how I lived for a good period of time, you know, just realizing that the necessity does kick in because at that point, there's, I think there's points in everybody's lives where they're making some money, but it's not enough money. And they're worried that if they go 100% the other way to make more money somewhere else, they're going to neglect their heart or what, what they want to do with their life. And it's very black and white. For me, it's been more like supplement. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm still going to maintain this. And okay, here's this. Okay, I'm going to go be a mechanic for a while. Having flexibility helps all of that. Eventually... Yeah, you haven't boxed yourself in. You kind of keep like, sure, I'll work on cars for a little bit. Yeah, Right, totally. And I learned lots of skills in that environment. Not, I mean, not just technical skills, but just, you know, how to make a living when you need to make a living, you know? And after leaving that and trying to, to make a living, you realize that I'm not able to work a day job every day, which I've done before, and maintain a healthy outlook on my life, okay. the creative side. <laughs> you need to have more control over your calendar. Yeah. Yeah. Because when people call you and you get a break and you can't do it because you can't get the time off work, it's, it's a challenging thing. I got lucky in some ways. I took lots of risks and I didn't make it. You know, I, I made mistakes and, and lost jobs, got fired from jobs because I'm booking gigs at work, you know, whatever I'm doing. <laughs> but my mind was always like, this is just a temporary tool financially or skill-wise to get me to where I want to be somewhere else. So, yeah, the, the being able to, to take work because you're not committed to something else is very important. And it, but it's really scary being self-employed because you don't know where your next paycheck's going to come from. You don't know what your next month's going to look like most of the time. You don't know if that tour or that gig or that whatever is just going to go away because it easily can. It happens to us all the time in this business. But I think you learn to trust yourself and you learn to trust that something will come because you're not just sitting on your butt the whole time. You are, I have pokers and fires all over the place. I'm trying to just create interest or do something here. So maybe that'll do something here later on. It's about building relationships or right, something there's, financial. There seems to be a little, at first there seems to be a little bit of a conflict because you're saying, I make my own opportunities, but then you're also saying, uh, I have trust. But I think that's, different than you're not saying that you're building your entire business strategy on hope no you're not you have trust that now because you've been doing this for a while you have trust that the actions you take and the ways that you put those pokers in the fire are going to have some kind of results and Uh that you are going to have enough money to pay the rent you know to just have a really like really clear basic example yeah sometimes someone might hear you say uh, you know, you just trust it all going to work out. And again, that doesn't mean just sitting on the couch and like right. hoping that the phone's going to call. Right. The phone's going to call? The f- yeah. The oh, phone's going to ring. The phone can call, can call you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a great point. And it, I think it cuts both ways. Like if you're, you know, I've, I've considered moving somewhere else. And that's a scary proposition to think about when you think about um, what it has taken you to maybe build a reputation where you currently live, right? And all of that. But at the end of the day, I think that it's you. It's always about you. You know, you're not ever rebuilding per se. I mean, there's a certain amount that I think you do have to rebuild if you move somewhere, if that's what you want to continue doing, if that's the level that you want to work at. But people are hiring you. They're hiring Nathan. They're hiring you for, for you, of who you are. People hire me because of me and who I am. And I believe in that. And I believe I have 
the goods necessary to work at a, at a certain level, and also the humility to work at a lower level. <laughs> okay, so part of trust is believing in yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so let's talk about you for a second. So you wrote about having success in Pro Audio that this business is less about your technical aptitude as it is your personal and social approach. People hire you because of what you personally bring to the table. Those traits are inherent, personal, and one-of-a-kind. Choosing you from a pool of equally qualified applicants is a privilege. So this is exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. So could you give me an example of when you have seen personalities sort of trump technical aptitude and why you have trust that this is why people are hiring you? I mean, myself. I mean, there's been plenty of plenty of situations where I've been asked to do something that is really honestly, technically, and even experience-wise, above what I know I can. Well, like, I've never done that before. But maybe I might not say that, you know, in the earlier days, because I was I was given a chance and I was somehow was trusted with something, or maybe a reputation prepared that person to say, "Oh, Nick can do it." And there's been plenty of times when. I've never done that before. That's interesting. So you didn't, whatever. You, you didn't lie, but you also didn't say that you didn't know. There's, I mean, <laughs> no, no, I bring no. it up because there's a point in the book where John Burton says that I've never lied to anyone, but there's been plenty of times when I've let people believe something <laughs> and didn't tell them that they were wrong. So yeah. uh, they think Nick's a great guy. I'd love to have him on this show, but they're not running through a checklist of a thousand things that you may or may not be able to do. They just figure like he'll be able to handle mm -hmm. it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah? And, and I think it's also it's like your resourcefulness. Like I'm, I'm sure there's been plenty of times when I've done something completely wrong that equaled the right thing. Okay, <laughs> you know what I mean. If that makes sure. any sense. <laughs> so it's just like just trying to be resourceful how to, how to get the end result in the best way you can, and then just kind of quietly, you know not let people know that that wasn't maybe the right way to do it, but we can get so wrapped up technically in this business. There's so much gear lust, sure. you know, there's and a lot to know. right. And, and there's a lot to know. Yeah. But fundamentals are missed quite a bit and all of that, but people are, are, they're impressed by the, the buttons and the lights and the size and all of those things and what someone else is using and, and the perceived value of, of how much it sounds better than something else. And we've definitely come leaps and bounds sonically than we, we, than we were 20, 30 years ago or even 10 or 15 years ago. But everything is really good right now. I mean, it really, really is. So then we, we go to the place where we're just dissecting things to a point where I feel like it's just a bit overboard, you know, and... So if you're only speaking to somebody else in a technical way, then you're not doing your job because the client is hiring you. If the client is a band, it's a singer, or if it's a, a corporate thing, or if it's a wedding or whatever the thing is, they're not hiring you because they want you to tell them how this console works or why this you know, you can hear 5K so much more in this thing than this thing, or this is much smoother. It's like they don't, that's not their job. That they, that's why they're asking you to, they're trusting you to make those decisions for them. But your interaction with them is, is where it's at. It's always where it's at. If you're rude or if you're very technical and not ex able to explain to them what they need to understand, or if you're just an asshole, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it sounds so ridiculous to, to explain it like that, but don't be a dick. You know, don't be rude. Don't, 
um, act like you know more than the other person does. Can you teach me how to not be a dick? Yes. Are there some specific things that you see other people say or do or things that I can try to avoid? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think you're, you're fine, Nathan. I don't think you can be with that. Uh, you but don't know. We haven't really worked together. You. That's yeah. true, right? <laughs> um, I think learning how to keep your cool is huge. I mean, how I've I seen people melt down, even on, well, even no, recently. Totally, it's totally happened down. to me. So Yeah. So yeah, and, how and, did you learn how to do that? I don't know. I think part of it is my own personality. I mean, I don't like confrontation. I don't like to, to argue with people um, unless it's necessary. And that's always been the way it's been my whole life. So I think that sneaks in a little bit. And I think a lot of the getting overwhelmed in a position where you're really uncomfortable, maybe you don't know what you're doing, or you're being put, you're being stressed in a way that you're not comfortable with. A lot of that anger or that response is insecurity. I think it's important to put the thing in perspective. Like, first of all, this isn't the end of the world. It may be very intense, and at the moment it seems like it is, but it isn't. And for me, I, I try to keep my cool and be professional. There's flags that will go up when you realize that maybe you're getting a bit overwhelmed. And there's definitely moments, I mean, as, as cool as I can be, there's definitely moments when there's a lot on the line, and there's a lot on my line, and there's the only person that can solve it is me, and everyone's staring at me, <laughs> right? I, mean, I had a show, a real quick story, on this tour. You know, in the daytime, I do all my wireless coordination, blah, blah, and, you know, I, I, I sync all the, all the packs and all the ears and all that stuff, and eventually I, I check the ears before I send them back to the dressing room before the show in this little backpack. So, massive show. During the day, there was an issue, and I had to re-coordinate a set of frequencies. You know, I sent the, the ears back to the dressing room and whatever, it's time for the show. Everything's cool. You know, I got my ears on. Everything's cool. Band walks out, gets on the talk back. One of the guys gets on the talk back and says, I don't have any ears. So at first I'm like, all right, well, that's probably one, one issue. And then everybody started getting on the talk back and told me they had no ears. And then I started clicking. I'm like, oh, I didn't resync the packs oh after God. the coordinate, which many? I've never done before. And, and I always, always check the packs before the show. Make sure their batteries, they're on, they're the right mix, even though 99% of the time it is, this time it wasn't. So at that situation, there's only one person that could solve it, that was me. This is the first song, huge show, nobody has ears. These guys are pros, they just go, they do it. And I literally had to run out there and grab each pack from each guy, go back, sync it, go back, plug it in, each guy. You know, I did this within 40 seconds. I was able to get out there with everybody and do that. And this was a situation where, you know, obviously I felt terrible that I missed that, that I screwed up that part, which is such a basic thing. And I've been doing this a long time. Yeah. This is the first time that's ever happened to me in that way. And that one checklist that I didn't do that one day could have saved me from that situation. Sure. Um, so that's a situation where every, all the eyes are on you and I could have just completely melted down. <laughs> Because, you know... Ah, run away. It could have been... Yeah, it's you just like... Because it, it was embarrassing for me. You know, I take pride in what I do, and I try to be very professional, and, like, a mistake like that happens, which is a really basic thing that I screwed up on. Um, but I was able to just keep cool, manage it, and just hope that I wasn't going to get yelled at at the end of the gig. You know, everybody was very, very... They're, they're cool because I, I, I solved the problem as fast as I can. I didn't need to go out there and tell them why or how I was going to solve it. I was just going to solve the problem yeah. as quickly as I could. Right. You must have been on edge for a little. I was. That, I though. wasn't happy after that one. I just Tough. felt 
how could I do that? First of all, remember that you're not saving babies. You know, you're not. This is very important, but put in perspective a little bit and just take a breath and just, you know, all right, I got this. It's cool. Because, you know, you, you, you feel yourself getting to that point where you're like, I may freak yeah. out here, <laughs> you know, and not, and not to blame other people. Yeah, I hear that a lot happening too. Well, it, it's somebody else's fault. Somebody else's fault. When you know it's your fault, just own up. That's you know. the first thing that always comes to mind when I'm, when I, something goes wrong and I'm angry and I'm getting blamed. The first thing I always want to do is blame someone else. Yeah. But it's sort it's of natural. like, I have, yeah, that's the, na- it's like faster than thought. I'm when like, it deflects. Who, yeah. Like, <laughs> how can I get this bad feeling away from me? Totally. And it's just like, yeah, a certain amount of training to just be able to stay calm and not react to that initial desire to just explode or, right. or uh, defend yourself. Right. And you can't, you can't. I always remember you can't control how people are coming at you and their reaction to whatever's happening. I mean, you can try to help them, but the only thing you can honestly do is just zen out on yourself (laughs) and try to be that calm person in this situation and not escalate and escalate and escalate. Because in the live sound world, it it is warfare most of the time. Meaning, I mean, even though my job seems very calm and collected there's a lot on the line every night and there's stresses that are happening often that i've just over the years have just built this level of i got this you know and if i believe in the stress and the heaviness of the situation i can't do this like when you do live television or you do really really big things where it's you you have to get this right you know but you don't tell yourself that you just do your job and be as cool and collected as you can. You can melt down at any moment. <laughs> Just don't. <laughs> Put it in perspective. Take a moment. So if you want to hear all about Nick melting down, you can read Get On Tour. I'm just kidding. He doesn't have a lot of stories about melting down there. He does have a lot of good stories. I, um, it's a, a great chapter in the book, along with a lot of, uh, lot of other great engineers. You can get the book for free until September 24th. So it's going to be for free at sounddesignlive.com between, I think, September 17th and September 24th, and then it'll be available for sale after that. Nick, is there anything that you wanted to talk to talk about that I didn't get to? Just want to thank you, Nathan, for what you do. <laughs> yeah, and the opportunity, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Nick, thanks for coming Appreciate to Minneapolis. It. Absolutely. I'll be here for about seven more hours. Thank you to the band OAR for the music in today's episode. You can find more of their music over at ofarevolution.liveoar.com. I want to thank Megan, Joel, Hasinqui, LSDC SoundOp, Dave, and Bob for supporting today's episode. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.